Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have come to your sanctuary today to receive a blessing. And we're confident that we will because we have invited your Holy Spirit to be here today. You know our hearts. You know our minds. And give us that which we need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was traveling in northern India, visiting a number of new churches that had been established. And we came to this little village, and they actually hadn't built a church yet. And so we were worshiping in the head elder's house. And uh, as we came in, I noticed that the place was packed. The entire living room, the bedroom, kitchen, people outside the doors looking in, the windows. And uh, it was just stuffed. So we kind of worshipped and sang and prayed and spoke together. And uh, finally, as the worship service came to an end, I asked the head elder, how did the church become established in this village? He looked at me and he said, oh, I was hoping that you would ask me that. And then he told me, he said, you know, one day, he said, I got up and he said, my son was sick. And uh, the next day, my son grew just a little bit worse. And the next day he was worse, and the next day he was worse. And after a couple of weeks, he couldn't even get out of bed. He said, one day my uncle came to me, and he said, what, well, what all have you done? He said, well, he said, we have taken him to the doctor, to the hospital, to the specialist. As a matter of fact, it's gotten to the point where we called in the, the healer, and he came. But there absolutely is nothing that's been effective. We have tried every, all the evidence says that it's impossible. Then the uncle kind of smiled at him and he said, well, you know, he said, there is a young man who has come to our village and he said, he claims to be a worshiper and to know the creator of the world. And he said, there have been people in our village who have not only been blessed spiritually, but they have been blessed physically. He said, I think you ought to bring your son. He said, oh, no, I can't bring my son. He's too sick. The uncle said, I, I think you should come. He will pray for your son. And so they agreed upon a time. And on that time, that young man said, I got on my bicycle. He said, I rode through the village. I went down that dirt road. I went down the asphalt road several kilometers, and I came to the village of my uncle. He says, I came into that village. He says, and there I met this young man. He invited me in. He says, well, he said, I only know one thing to do. He says, and that's to pray to the creator of the world. He said, we got down on our knees. He said, I thought, well, you know, he might pray for five or ten minutes. He said, but he prayed for ten minutes, 15, 20, 25 minutes. He said, after about 30 minutes of praying specifically for my son, he said, okay, we can stand up now. He said, I believe you should go home. He said, I'm just impressed that the Lord has answered our prayer and your little boy is going to be standing on the front porch to meet you. He said, you can't imagine, he said, the hope that began to fill my heart. He said, my uncle and I, we ran off of that porch, we jumped on our bicycles, and we began to ride down that asphalt road. He said, I was quite a bit younger than my uncle. He said, I outrode him. He said, I got to the dirt road, I made the turn. He said, we were, we were going as fast as we could. He said, I came through the village, came around the spirit tree, and he said, when I came around that tree past the corner of the barn, he said, I stopped the bicycle. He says, because on the front porch was my son. 
He said after that, he says, the spirit tree was cut down. He said, and we began to study about the God and the creator of the world. And then he looked at me and he smiled. And he said, I want you to remember this. He said, nevertheless, always trust him. Nevertheless, always trust him. There's an interesting story, if you'll open your Bibles, found in Luke, the fifth chapter. And I want to just run through this just a little bit, not read every detail of it. It's a story that's familiar to us. It starts in verse 1. And basically the first few verses there say that Jesus was preaching. And uh, he stepped out on the boat of Simon Peter. And he said, Peter, would you mind pushing the boat out a little bit? And those first few verses, they indicate that really there's no record of what Jesus was preaching about. All it says in those first few verses is that Jesus came to an end of his preaching. He was preaching about the gospel. He was preaching about hope. And he came to an end of his preaching. And then it records that Jesus said to Peter, Peter, push your boats out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Now, it doesn't really record everything probably that Peter was thinking. Because I'm sure that as Christ said that, that, that suggestion fell on the ears of many people. And I can just imagine being a companion of Peter and uh, working on the nets, cleaning them. And then all of a sudden I hear this, hey, take the nets back in, dump them in the water again and, uh, and, uh, for a catch. And I'm sure there's quite a few people that probably were, were thinking, You've got to be kidding. It doesn't, doesn't really record what Peter exactly was thinking, but there is an indication of what he was thinking in verse 5. Because when you look at verse 5, Peter said he looked at Jesus, and Peter said, Lord, we have been fishing all night, and we have caught how much? Zero. We haven't caught anything. I'm sure he was thinking, look, why don't I stick with the fishing? You stick with the preaching. He said, because you don't catch fish in the daytime. You catch fish at night. But there is that little word. That little word that comes in there that I love in the King James Version because it says, Peter said, nevertheless, because you have asked me, we will go out and cast our nets into the deep. Nevertheless. And, of course, we know the rest of the story. They pushed the boats out. They cast their nets into the deep. They caught so many fish that when they began to pull them in, the nets, the nets tore. They put them in two boats. He called his partners. The boats began to sink. But, you know, it doesn't indicate that Peter was part of that action because it said that Peter was found at the feet of Jesus. And he was there and he said, Lo, I'm a sinful man. And, you know, that was the time that Jesus said, look, come with me. I will make you fishers of men. Nevertheless, I believe with all of my heart that now as never before in the history of our church, we need a nevertheless generation. This morning I'd like to speak with you about three aspects of the Christian journey. God calling his people to a nevertheless 
experience. The first aspect I want to talk to you about is that nevertheless to believe that the gospel, the hope of the gospel includes you and it includes me. Number two, I would like to talk to you about the fact that we need to live and believe God's word, the Bible. And number three, I would like to talk with you about nevertheless, regardless of the evidence of mission, he's calling us to be his witness. Let's take a look at the first item. You know, not, uh, not too long ago, I was looking at some information that was generated from a research project conducted at Andrews University. It was a world survey. And there was pieces of that information that caused me a little concern. One area that caused me a little concern as I looked at that is that I discovered that there was a larger percentage of Seventh-day Adventists around the world than I was comfortable with that indicated that they were not confident of their salvation. They said, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the assurance of my salvation. Now, I have no idea who's in the audience today. There may be some here today who say, well, I'm not, I'm not real confident. Pastor, you don't know my background. I want to review just a little bit, if I can, the character and personality of God. I want to call those of you that have that question today to a nevertheless experience to say, because he said it, I trust him. Let's look at some text. Open your Bibles to Isaiah, the first chapter in verse 18. What does it say? It says, come on, let's be reasonable. Let's talk together. I don't care if your sins are like scarlet. I'll cleanse them, and I'll give you righteousness, and I'll clean them up. When you look at Romans, the eighth chapter, and you start reading in verse 35 and to the end of the chapter there, Paul begins a description of my relationship with Jesus. He indicates that there's not anything that can separate us from Jesus' love. Nothing. Find it in there. He goes through a description, height, depth, principalities of darkness, this and that, tragedies. Nothing can separate you from God's love. That's what it says. I also like the text in uh, Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, starting in verse 20. It indicates that every man, woman, will die for their sins. You won't die for your son's sins or he for yours, but you're going to die for your own. But when you look at verse 21, it says that if you will accept my plan, that you will live according to what I have asked you to do, I will forgive those sins and I will give you life and not death. And then the news gets even better in verse 22 because it indicates there that if you will take that life, that Jesus will not recall those sins anymore. Is that good news? Now, these aren't my words. They happen to be what the Bible says. Most popular text in the world, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that what? Whoever believes in him, they're not going to perish, but they're going to have eternal life. I also like the description that John the Revelator gives. You look at chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, and uh, there's a description there of the opening of the sixth seal. Now, I don't plan to get into the opening of the seals today, but it really is a description of the world at the end of time. Great tragedies are happening all over the place. Things are in turmoil. The leaders of the world are living in fear. They're asking that the mountains fall on them. Matter of fact, 
in verse 17 it says, who then shall be able to stand? Well, I'm happy that John doesn't leave us hanging in the air because as you come down in chapter 7, you find that John is in vision and he's standing around the throne of God. And there's an elder that comes up to John and the elder says, who are these people that are dressed in white robes? And John said, well, I I don't really know. You know the answer to that better than I do. Why don't you tell me? And then the elder says to John, John, these are the people who came through that great tribulation we just read about in chapter 6, the end of the world. And he said, they're standing here today for one reason. They're standing here because they took their dirty, filthy rags and they washed them in the blood of the Lamb And Jesus gave them life and not death. That's why they're here. You know, regardless of the evidence, we need to say, nevertheless, I'll trust him. I've had people come to me and they'll say, but pastor, you don't know my background. Why, if you just knew the things that I've done, if you have any idea what I've been into, you wouldn't be up preaching like this. Friends, this is not my words. We need a generation in the church that accepts the fact that Jesus has paid the sacrifice. He's paid the sacrifice. And if you happen to be one of those here seated that have that little doubt, I challenge you to have a nevertheless experience. I want to come to item number two. I want to talk about living by the Bible. How then shall I live? How am I going to live? You can be assured that for every truth there is in the Bible that the devil has a deception. There's another way. He will make sure that there's evidence that leads you another way. Or there's no evidence for what God wants you to do. You know, I can't help but turn to the the, uh, book of uh, Hebrews in chapter 11 and just review some names very quickly with you. You can flip over in uh, your Bible to Hebrews 11. Noah, though it had never rained, nevertheless, he spent 120 years preaching and building an ark. Abraham promised to be the father of a great nation. Nevertheless, he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Joseph, though he was the second citizen of Egypt, and surrounded by the power and the glory and the wealth. Nevertheless, he gave instructions to his family. He said, when I die, take my bones with you. I'm going with God's plan. I think of Moses, who was the heir to the throne of Egypt. Again, everything that the earth could offer was his. Nevertheless, he refused to be called the son of of Pharaoh's daughter. I think also of the Israelites. They had never seen a sea open up, but nevertheless, when it opened up, they walked through those columns of water. The Israelites had never seen a wall tumble down when people shouted, but nevertheless, they circled that city seven times. They blew the trumpets and they shouted and the wall came down. Think of Elijah in the midst of no evidence 
that there was going to be a drought. Nevertheless, he told the king, it's not going to rain. And then, a few years later, in the evidence that there was no rain coming, he stood before the king and said, nevertheless, it's going to rain. People who prayed were to be fed to the lions. Nevertheless, Daniel, he prayed three times a day. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, to the second book of Timothy. I want us to look at chapter 3 and verses 1 to 5, just to kind of scan through that. It's interesting as this passage begins that Paul says this passage refers to the end of time. That's what it says. Look at it. Read it. At the end of time. I like to believe that we're living at that time right now. At the end of time, and then Paul begins to describe what will be considered to be ordinary living. And I, and I think we've all read this passage. He begins to say that at the end of time, it's going to be perilous times. People are going to love themselves. They're going to be covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient, without natural affection. You can go on down through the list there. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of, of, uh, of God. And you can read the list of the, of the description that Paul says, this is going to be ordinary living. It's how people are going to say that you have to behave. It's, it's going to be the thing that you have to do. You know, it's interesting. We live in a world that wants it both ways. They, they, they want to enjoy the wisdom of the world, and yet they want to be found as people who have a reputation of being people of the word. They want to have it on both sides. I'm reminded of a little boy whose behavior had become such that the teacher had to ask him, Johnny, what's the definition of a lie? Johnny said, well, he said, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. <laughs> we want to have it both ways. We want to have it both ways. Recently, I got a new Webster's Dictionary, and as I was kind of looking up some words, I suddenly came across the word Enron. Enron. Now, when I said that word, I saw a number of you go, yeah, you shook your head. And I was expecting to read a definition that said a company that went bankrupt. But you know, that's not the definition they gave. They used it as a synonym for dishonesty, a lack of integrity. In the dictionary, that has become ordinary behavior. You know, it's interesting as you come down to the end of that passage, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5, Paul in one translation says, but nevertheless, from such stay away. That's not what God's calling us to. That's not the lifestyle that he's calling us to. You know, the Bible, it warns us of those who would so embrace the idol of their own thinking, their own supposed knowledge, that they cast aside the treasures of God's word and they take on the wisdom of the world. In the world today, there's a great debate on origins and creation. You know, Richard Dawkins can write his book entitled, The God Delusion. Christopher Hitchens can write his book, God is Not Great. Jerry Coyne, Why Evolution is True. Sean Carroll, The Making of the Fittest. 
and they can fill their books with the theories of radiometric dating, stacked sequence, heat dissipation, plate tectonics, and they can describe those theories in the statistical language of being significant at the .05 level, T-scores and canonical correlations and two-way analysis of variance. But nevertheless, the world was created in six literal contiguous days. God's word, he's calling us to a nevertheless experience. Take it, read it, place it in your hearts. I want to talk to you about the third area. God has called us, regardless of the evidence of mission, to be his witnesses. I have had opportunity to be part of a lot of discussions regarding church growth. And I've had people come up to me and they say, well, I, I really don't have any talents. I don't, I don't have any wisdom I don't have any gifts in this area. God hasn't blessed me. What can I possibly do? Do you know our neighbors? Do you know the kind of environment I live in? It's impossible. All the evidence that's collected says you can't do this. You know, this morning I'm happy to be a member of a church that have had pioneers to this movement that have had a nevertheless experience. They've set that example for us. Can you imagine those early pioneers, just a few of them studying the Bible? You know, William Miller going through the trues and Ellen and James White and those, those early pioneers. And as they studied this, and wow, we've, we've got to proclaim this to other people. Can you imagine as they looked out into the nearest town, the nearest city, the state, the United, what were they thinking? I recall some of those stories. Joseph Bates, this is at an early time. He was developing a little pamphlet on the Sabbath. It was at a time when really he had some questions about Ellen White being a prophet and Ellen White had some questions about his theory on the Sabbath. That's how early I'm talking about. And as he was working on this little track, his wife came in to him and she said, Dear, we don't have any flour. Could you buy some? Oh, sure, I'll be glad to. He went down to the store, reached in his pocket, pulled out a little coin, and it was the only one he had. And the guy said, well, that'll buy five pounds of flour. He got that, took it home. And when he handed it to his wife, she looked at it, and she burst into tears. And she said, is this what we have come to? You were a sea captain that sailed the world. When you brought home flour, it was by the barrel full. And she left the room. As he continued working on that little track, he was impressed to go down to the post office. Got up, went down there. Postmaster said, sure enough, you have a letter but you owe me five cents postage. Well, I don't have five cents. Well, I know you, I'll trust you. No, no, he says, you, you open it up. He says, I'm impressed that there's money there. That postmaster opened up the letter and there was a $10 bill with a note that said, I've impressed that you have sacrificed all for the gospel and you need this money. Well, Joseph Bates went down to the grocery store and he bought a wagon load of groceries. Don't try that with $10 now. And he said, deliver it to this address. And when you get there, he said, there'll be a lady who says you have the wrong address. He snuck in the back door and continued to work on his track. And sure enough, after a short time, 
His wife came blowing into the room and she said, there's someone delivering groceries. I've told them they have the wrong address. I don't know exactly what happened, but I can only imagine that they, he stood up, he embraced his wife, and they had a nevertheless experience. I've also been in the archives of the General Conference, <laughs> had the privilege of reading letters from those early converts that were up in the northeastern part of the United States, and they spread out across America. They wrote letters to Ellen and James White, come to Iowa, come to Montana, to Oregon, to California, to Oklahoma, Kansas. We have started a group of believers here. Help us organize the church. I think of the comment that Ellen White made. She says this work will go forward, but it's going to go forward in the spirit of sacrifice. In the spirit of sacrifice. That three angels message, Revelation 14 that message spread across America about the 1880s. It came to the attention of our church leaders that Matthew 28 didn't say, go to the United States. But it said, go to the whole world. Take this message to everybody. Every kindred, nation, tongue, any culture, you can take it everywhere. When you look at that generation, there was a generation that provided us with an example of a nevertheless experience. It echoes down through time and it calls us today. I think of people like Abram LaRue. He was a shepherd and a woodcutter that lived in Sacramento or San Francisco. He came some, to some evangelism meetings. And there he, night by night, gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and he became convinced that Jesus was coming again. He was coming soon. So then after he was baptized, he wrote a letter to the General Conference, which I've held that letter, a copy of it in my hand. And he said, send me as a missionary to Asia. He said, it's come to my attention that there's not anyone in Asia that knows this message. Send me. I also read a letter that came back from the General Conference, and basically it said two things. One, you are too old. And number two, we don't have any money. Now, that's a common message from the General Conference. We don't have any money. Did that stop Abram LaRue? It didn't stop Abram LaRue. He sold all the things he had. He went down, bought his own tickets. He got on a boat. He sailed to Manila, Singapore, Bangkok, settled in Hong Kong. There he printed his own literature. He developed Bible study guides. He worked year after year. And pretty soon he wrote a letter to the general conference. He said, send a missionary. Because even though the evidence said I couldn't go and the evidence said it was impossible, nevertheless, God's provided a harvest. Today, if we were worshiping in Hong Kong instead of here, I could take you out to a lonely hillside and show you the grave of Abram LaRue. He never came home. He lies there in that port city on the edge of that great nation of China where just about 15 years ago we had 18,000 active members. Today, nearly 400,000. And in Asia, more than 2 million Seventh-day Adventists. Would Abram LaRue say the sacrifice was worth it nevertheless? Would he say that? I also think of that farmer in the state of Kansas. His name was George Ripple. The pastor came by to visit him. And they prayed together. And then George said, you know, the Lord's placed a burden on my heart. He said, there's no, no members, no one that knows the three angels' message on the continent of South America. He said, I, I think the Lord wants me to do this. 
they separated. The pastor went to pastor his other 16 churches, and they never met again. Because George Riffle sold everything, took his family to New Orleans, they bought tickets on a boat, and they went to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And in 1894, when he put his foot on the continent, he was one Seventh-day Adventist for 35 million people. All the evidence said, it's not possible. How can you do this? You're just one person. Not long ago, I was at River Platte College, and I asked him, take me up to that little church. I want to see it. We drove up there. I got out, went into the church. It's not big. Stepped out of the church, went over to the cemetery. I walked down the rows, and there I stood at the foot of the grave of, Abra I mean, of, uh, of George Riffle. I realized that George Riffle and his wife, they never went home. They gave their life that this message might be known on the continent, South America. As I stood there that day, I couldn't help but wonder, what would it be like if George Riffle could be alive today? What would it be like? I'd like to take him to the city of San Paulo, stand on the hill, and there to realize that there are more than 1,000 Seventh-day Adventist churches in that city. To realize that there's 1.3 million members in Brazil. To realize that there's 800,000 members in Peru. To make that realization, would he say that the sacrifice is worth it? Somewhere he had a nevertheless experience. He and his wife, they lie in a grave in South America and Argentina. They're waiting for Jesus to come, and it's not going to be long, and we're going to meet him. Was it worth it? Nevertheless. I also have stood at that cemetery, the northeast portion of it at Seleucy College, and I've stood there at the graves of the early pioneers, and I recalled how they sold everything they had in the northeastern part of the United States. They took boats to South Africa, and there they bought covered wagons and oxen. And they traveled the many miles across South Africa into Zimbabwe. The city of Bulawayo went 20 miles east of the city, and there they established Seleucy Training Institute. And as I stood there that day, I couldn't help. What would it be like? How exciting if they were alive. What would they say if they realized that there are 5 million members on the continent, nearly 6 million on the continent of Africa? Graduate schools and churches, hospitals. Would they say the sacrifice was worth it? Nevertheless, nevertheless, I believe that God is calling a generation to a nevertheless experience. I know that, you know, there are people here from all over probably the world. And I, I've had people come to me and say, I don't know. You know, I, it's really difficult in our neighborhood. It's really difficult in this particular area. In the last six months, I have been on a little itinerary in planning sessions for certain countries in which we do not have Seventh-day Adventists. I'm not going to name those countries on television. It doesn't do our members any good over there. But I think most of you know where they're at. And it's very easy to come out there and, and to meet people who go, well, it's impossible. All the evidence says you can't do this. Don't you know we've been trying to do something here for 100 years? Nevertheless, let's put a plan together. You know, we've talked about 15 years ago going to the 1040 window. And uh, we're going to place an emphasis there as a church. I want to give you just a little report on that. Just very, very brief. We had 9% of our membership in that window. In 1990, in the past 15 years, the membership inside that window has grown 240% while the membership in the rest of the world has grown 87%. And so I'm just telling you, 
that God is performing miracles when we place ourselves in the spirit of sacrifice. Incidentally, I want to thank you. I want to thank ASI for playing a role in making a lot of that happen. Thank you. I want to thank you as Seventh-day Adventist church members for your faithfulness in tithes and mission offerings. Some of you say, well, does that really make a difference? I want to tell you, it makes a huge difference because in that spirit of sacrifice, God performs miracles. And today I can tell you of thousands and thousands of new congregations that are worshiping in the 1040 window among the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the animists, the communists. And there they are for the first time. Somebody, a little worker, a layman has gone there, and they have written history in heaven because they had a nevertheless experience. Do you want to be part of that? Do you want to be part of that? I want to call you to that this morning. A new generation to have a nevertheless experience. Let me conclude by just telling this little story. I was in northern Mexico. And uh, we had gone there because we wanted to visit 12 new churches that had been established. The work is not easy in North Mexico. And uh, we had come to a camp meeting where the 12 churches were coming together. And uh, there was a retired worker that had gone there and established these 12 churches. And I suppose that day there were about 1,200 people there. And uh, they were going to have quite a day of it, singing, praying, preaching. But one of the special events that they were going to baptize, 47 people. And it just happens to be the culture in that particular area that when you have a baptism, that each person that's going to be baptized stands before the microphone and they give a little testimony. And so I was there seated on the front row and this long line, and they began to give their little short testimonies. Well, just after one or two people, this great big guy stood up in front of the the microphone. He was bigger than I was and uh, kind of gruff. And he said, well, there's a lot of you that are surprised to see me here today. He says, let me tell you how this happened. He said, I was in my house one day. He said, I was drinking a beer. And he said, I heard this little knock on the door. I opened up the door, and here stood a little boy about this tall, and under his arm he had a great big Bible, and he said to me, not hello, how are you? Good afternoon. His first words were, Mr., do you want to study the Bible with me? And he thought, well, what harm can there be in studying the Bible with this little guy? He said, I opened up the door, ushered him in. And he said, you know, day after day after day, that little boy came back and studied the Bible with me, and I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and nevertheless, I'm going to be ready when Jesus comes. You know, the amazing part of that was that of those 47 people, there were seven people who gave the same testimony about the same little boy. At the end of that baptism, Elder Miranda stood up and he said, it's a custom here to invite anyone else who would like to prepare for baptism. Who is it that would like to prepare? I turned around to see if there might be someone that would come forward. And to my great shock, there was a little boy this tall on the second row who had stood up seven times in recognition that came up to the front and said, yes, I want to be baptized. And then I found out that you can't baptize people in Mexico unless you're 12. He was 11 years old. Nevertheless, a generation called to that. Friends, I don't know. I don't know your situation here this morning. 
But if you need the confidence that Jesus has forgiven you, I beg you to, to claim that nevertheless experience. If some of the theories of the world and practices have made little inroads into your life, I pray that you will say, no, I'll have a nevertheless experience. I'm going to live by God's word. I'm going to believe what he teaches. And if you've been called to mission, which every person here has, because that's what this church is about, I would ask you to have a nevertheless experience. I don't care what the evidence is. It can all be stacked up, but nevertheless, trust him. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. Jesus is coming. Nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.